The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 58, Miscellany, June 26, 2014. Let's go, Mumble. One, two, three, four. Okay, that's going. All right. And so, Adam, I'm going to this. I'm going to allow you to ask your own question today of yourself. Oh, geez. Now you're expecting me to be creative. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh, I need more beer. Everyone is everyone loaded? Oh, jeez. No, I don't. Everyone forgot, didn't they? No, we just got to leave this on. It's fine. Just go. <laughs> that's actually yeah, that's, a good our, that's our intro. I need more beer. <laughs> <laughs> what are you drinking tonight? I'm I'm going pretty lame. I got uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. Well, I mean, not lame. Lame is in unexciting choice. Not lame is in it's a bad beer. Well, but it's a it's a good solid standby. Yes, it is. There's nothing wrong with the beer. It's just not an exciting choice. I could be saying I'm drinking, you know, something with gold shavings in there. Goldschlager. There we go. It's a delicious choice. And economical. Carbonated Goldschlager. Next beer. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds awful. Yeah, it probably does. I can't think it, I've ever had Goldschlager. I made it through my college years without having it. Yeah. Well, isn't it cinnamon or something? Uh, or is it peppermint? It's fireball. Now, something like that's that. That's mm-hmm. That's awful, too. Mmm. Schnapps. <laughs> yes, it's awful. All right. Engineering, I think. Right? Engineering. What's that? Engineering is... Did uh, we do that last week? What are we going to talk about this week? Neuroscience. Oh, yeah. We, we, we covered everything last week. Mm-hmm. Wrote the book on it. We're done. Well, so uh, since we've covered everything to be covered, uh, is there anything, any new topics that you're curious about? Any uh, any new territory you'd like to cover in this podcast? I don't know, Jeff. What's on your mind this week? Who, me? What's on your to-do list? Oh, uh, well, I've got the uh, software carpentry workshop that I'm trying to plan out. And I've got mm-hmm. some changes that I want to make to the uh, the mechatronics course. In the past two years, I've taught the course and we've used a uh, Arduino board for programming. And the courses that was originally developed, they were using uh, CPLDs, was that complex programmable logic devices. Mm-hmm. And, That's correct. Oh, very good. I got one right. And <laughs> uh, and so part of the course has to do with combinational logic and how you're pulling in memory or you're signaling other devices to be active. And so you need those lines. And when you're using the Arduino, all that goes away. You know, basically you just say, I want to, I pick a pin and that's active and you know, so this whole bit about having to create a gray code or a binary code to activate a certain device goes away. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I was talking with a professor that had originally created the uh, the mechatronics program in the first place, this class. And uh, we were talking about the possibility of, of converting from using Arduinos to using PG, uh, FPGA boards uh, to do that. Because if we did that, then once again, you'd have to, to worry about this addressing situation and some of the combinational logic that's... Uh, uh, a couple of weeks of the uh, the course would make more sense than it does when we're using Arduino boards. Mm-hmm. Do you have to? You want to take the time away from the actual mechatronics instead of uh, instead of talking about that, talking about how 
programming VHDL or something. Yeah, so that so that's the that's the argument. I've I've uh, got a friend who teaches a similar course, and uh, his comment was, "I just can't afford the time to to teach the language." So that we we uh, where was it? I listened to uh, the Amp Hour, and they were talking with uh, oh the guy's name escapes me, but the he runs Excess uh, XCSS. What's the name of uh, FPG? Yeah, Dave Dave Vandenbot. Yeah. And yes. he, he was talking about he was the butt. He was the butt crack guy. <laughs> okay, I, I just saw him at Maker Fair last week. He loved that little plug. He he did the butt crack episode of the Amp Hour. Okay, but he was talking about a, a Python based program I think called MyHDL, which sort of simplified the the writing of programs. And so I was curious about whether I could rewrite the uh, you know the labs and the and the uh, the study material using that, or whether. You know, I'd have to be going back to the, you know, to the Verilog or the VHDL, VHDL language to get that stuff done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then you got to rewrite it, all the labs and stuff. And that's more work on you. And do you want that responsibility? <laughs> well, so, yeah, to, the, to a certain extent in that it will force me to learn FPGAs. You know, I've been curious oh, about go. them for a long time, but I really haven't had a good reason to sit down and learn them. I've, I've got my board that I bought from uh, from Dave's company two years ago that's you know still sitting somewhere around here in the, pa- in the esd bag in in the package has not been out of the bag since i bought it right <laughs> um and that's you know that's a shame so yeah well whatever you do don't do it uh don't do your program in a schematic capture tool dave had a rant about that he posted on his blog we'll link to it um good article but yeah it just talks about the pros and cons of using a schematic capture instead of vhdl yeah sounds like there's mostly cons yeah well, the, and the other thing that I'm interested in is just that, um, you know, in the same way that I understand that when you're writing SQL code, you have to think in a much different manner than you do when you're writing uh, traditional, you know, scripting language because you're operating on the entire database at one time. Uh, mm-hmm. With FPGA, you're doing everything concurrently as, a, as opposed to sequentially. And so I've, I've read people talking about the, you know, the different thought model there, but I'm interested in going through that myself and kind of experiencing that. Yeah, it's definitely a different uh, thought process from what I hear. When I was doing a lot of VHDL, especially when I was coming out of doing a lot of C, the one thing that I find really difficult and you take for granted with respect to C is uh, the ability to do sequential things. Things that require a lot, uh, a lot of state machines, I think, at least for me, they felt very difficult mm-hmm. uh, because of just what you mentioned. I mean, the inherent serial execution of C makes things, you know, makes the flow of the program and the, and the timing of things very easy to control. You know, this will happen before this. You know, this function will be called first and the data will be ready by the next function. Mm-hmm. You know, all of that gets very complicated with VHDL. Yeah, so one of the things we teach in in the mechatronics course we try to emphasize because most mechanical engineering students go to, don't get it anywhere else is the concept of state machines and that you you know uh, for certain types of logic and especially for physical devices you know you got an autonomous vehicle and it, it either has to roll straight or it has to turn left or it has to turn right and you can move from state you know the state of going straight to the state of go- turning right or the state of turning left and you have logic to make that transition and so state machines are very easy to program in uh in Arduino code, you know, it's, what is that? Yeah. Basically C plus code. Give or take. Yeah. Or C, C plus plus code. So how is that, how is that done in the uh, FPGA, Brian? 
very carefully. <laughs> okay. so oh, there's little gears inside, and you just connect them in a state fashion, and Ooh. the electrons <laughs> act like water and spin the gears. <laughs> At the end of the day, so it's, a, it's a state machine. And I'm not like it sounds, Jeff. I'm having to reach back further in my head. So the pro- the project I was executing was effectively a uh, a video capture card. I mean, it mm-hmm. was more than that, but I mean, in its simplest form, it was a video capture card for an RS one seventy video signal. And then we did some math on that on you know the images that we extracted from the RS one seventy. I think it's RS one seventy. Nah, it was. Um, I just remember, you know, line uh, capturing sequential data, you know, horizontal line data, and then frame data was excruciatingly painful. Mm-hmm. I, and it's it's not undoable. It's just things that you take for granted with C. Right. That you have you almost had to create separate modules based on which you know vertical line you were on, mm-hmm. or horizontal line you were on. Sorry, you know and and how do you find the, God, I'm really stretching back, the, the uh, blanking pulses. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's challenging. You know, if I search for this topic on Google, I can find articles about how to implement state machines in FPGA. So I'm pretty oh, sure yeah. it's, I'm pretty oh, yeah. sure it's it, doable. I just, I, I haven't oh, tried oh, it it's, yet. It's very doable. And it's, oh, I mean, it's probably the, it's, it's. The number, I mean, you have to be able to do it in order to implement a complex system. I'm just saying in terms of how people think about projects, the primary difference in my mind between, you know, sequential programming in C and VHDL, doing sequential things gets very difficult mm-hmm. in VHDL or can. And, you know, that's probably from a VHDL novice, but. Yeah, well, you're learning a new programming language, essentially, I would guess. Yeah. It's more than the syntax too. It's not like it's it's. I mean, and this is obvious, but it's not like going from you know Java to Python or or Ada to C. It's you know they're still you know executing on sequential systems. It's a whole new way of thinking in terms of programmable devices. Right now, um, as a mechanical engineer, the concept of a state machine was completely beyond me until I ran into this course and had to teach it and went through the, you know, the notes for the course and said, oh, this is very interesting. And, you know, there's plenty of material about state machines because it gets covered by mathematicians as well as programmers, as well as electrical engineers. But but I hadn't run into it as a mechanical engineer. Is this the topic that's uh, commonly taught in the uh, the electrical engineering curriculum? Yeah. Uh, you at least get it touched on in your basic digital course. Okay. It's touched upon, but I, I didn't take any of the embedded courses in school, so. I felt like it's one of those concepts that I'd been doing for years but didn't know the name of it. <laughs> okay. Hmm. You know, in the hack code that I was writing before I had any formal software training or any electrical training, it was it was just something you did. Oh, that's called a state machine. You know, it, it, it's such a fundamental problem that I think you're doing something wrong in software if you haven't run into it yet. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've written a lot of software, too, so that's that's consider the source. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to see if I can find the note. There's, I've got a good quote about uh, state machines that the fact that they're very practical, but but when you study them in school, they uh, they make it sound like it's just impossible to understand. Yes. I do not remember the terminology of state machines, to be honest. 
Now, for those of us with a much less formal programming background, would you uh, mind giving a definition or description of what a state machine is exactly? I already, I already gave that. The electrons flow over the gears. Yeah, yeah. maybe a, a true one. <laughs> you, you call me a liar? I'm just fighting words. <laughs> well, let's actually, so I don't embarrass myself, I'm going to give the first three sentences of whatever Wikipedia says. <laughs> There we okay, go. go change Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's see. A finite state machine, or simply a state machine, is a mathematical model of computation used by both computer programmers, sorry, computer programs and sequential logic circuits. That's not very helpful. That's an awful it? definition. Yeah. All right, let's go to let's go to simple wiki and we'll we'll look it up then. Well, here, so I'll, I'll give you the the. The definition that I gave in class. How about that? That'd be great. Okay, so uh, yes, what, what I what I told my class was we are used to procedural languages like C or Python or whatever. When you you tell uh, you tell the system exactly how things are supposed to be done, and not necessarily what is supposed to be done. So you say you know copy this you know copy this string from from variable a to variable b but you don't give any definition about you know why are we doing this it doesn't care well a state machine is a declarative model and that is saying what is to be done but it says nothing about how to do it so if you are in in the idea if with a state machine you have a state for instance your vehicle is going straight forward you don't tell it how to go straight forward you just have this mathematical abstraction we are going straight forward and and it it is up to you to deliver current and, and voltage to the proper motors for you to go straight forward. And then when you, in, within the model, you say, well, when something happens, for instance, our sensor sees that there's a wall in front of us, we need to turn left. And so now your model, your abstract model says there's a different state. There's a going straight forward state and there's a turning left state. And when, you, when your sensors see that the wall is coming up, you need to transition from the going forward state to the turn left state. Okay, that is the transition within the state machine. But it it cares not about how you do it. It's up to you to, you know, when that when that transition occurs. Upon that transition, it's up to you to hook up the lines to the right motors, or the right computers, or the right you know whatever regulator, you know whatever you got to do to make the thing turn left. If that's what the state you know wants you to do, so it's it's an abstraction in that it is it's not a procedural model, but it's a declarative model, and you go from state you know. If you have a system that's constantly changing states, you do not have finite states. I mean, that's the important part, finite. There's a certain number of them. But if you have finite states, you have distinct finite states that you can write down and keep track of, then a finite state machine may be appropriate. Okay. Now, did that help or did I just start? <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, clear as mud. It's a far better definition than I had 10 minutes ago. Okay. Here's, here's a very simple example. It's, it's the way uh, your system will change the way it's both uh, producing and consuming data based on whatever, the context it's in, uh, defined by your state. And the transition from those states is you know, basically the definition of the machine. Good example, having a conversation. I'm either in a talking mode or a listening mode, which is a lot of, you know, the arbitration of who's talking now. And, okay, so my device is talking now. That means everyone else has to be in a listen state. And now as I transition from the talking state, I will move to the listen state. 
defined by, you know, you know, I said five words, move to the listen state. And then other devices noticing that I've moved to the listen state might transition to the st talking state. You know, it's you change which functions you're calling and how you're, you know, consuming data based on which state you're in. And again, it's something you're already doing, but it's, it's, it's you know, I think if you're writing any kind of software, it's the discipline of defining, grouping the behaviors into, you know, well-defined states and how you move between those states and also the conditions that uh, don't you don't want to result in a state transition. You know, I don't know. Okay. I No, I just made it worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't say that, but... Well, one of the things that's helpful is when you can show a state transition diagram. And here in the podcast format, it's really hard to show a state transition diagram. So that doesn't that doesn't help too much. Yeah, we're not really word painters here, are we? See, I've I've now forwarded to all the guys a perfect diagram of a state machine, and everyone has a very clear understanding of what one is. <laughs> Ooh, very good. Now I get it perfectly. Thank hey, you, guys. Brian. Wow, <laughs> just beamed into my head. Podcasts are great. <laughs> Just like the Matrix. We don't talk about the Matrix. Is that the first rule of the podcast club? I thought we didn't talk about Fight Club. Well, now we don't. Jeez, you got the cat out of the bag. Oops. <laughs> we can edit that out. It's fine. All right. We'll do that. Well, so that's uh, that's what uh, is sitting on my mind. What's uh, what's on your mind, Adam? Uh, well, um, working on more projects to uh, make more beer. Uh, <laughs> so how do we get back to beer again? We always seem to get back to beer. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm working on a, a brewery control system like I've always been working on. Uh, I'm trying to interface with Android and Bluetooth and, yeah, programming. <laughs> oh, wow. So why, why do you need Bluetooth? What are you doing that has to be uh, wirelessly controlled? Well, I actually decided to go to uh, Bluetooth for the water resistance. Um, then I don't have to have... It, it's easy to make a watertight connection around a large cable, but mm -hmm. some of these smaller ones, it's a little bit harder to deal with, and you know, laptops and tablets and things like that, it, they're not really that water resistant. So I figured um, with Bluetooth... I can seal my control module in a plastic box and the water can't get in. It will find a way. Well, it, in the couple hours I'm brewing, it won't get in and cause too much trouble. Okay, so you're not going for an immersion-proof system. N no, no, no. Um, Splash-resistant, wash-down type system. Ah. Um, which... You know, that's that's plenty good enough. And then it also lets me, uh, when I'm warming things, or starting up and just trying to get something hot, I can walk away and have some idea what's going on. And, you know, go inside and cook lunch or something and not have to constantly watch it. Yeah, that whole hour or so of the boil takes a while. And, you know, I just sit there and watch it. Well, the boil I do. But it actually takes quite a while to get up to yeah. temperature. That's true. You do have a, a big amount of water, a large amount of water. Yeah, you know, eight or nine gallons trying to get that up to 170 or so. It it takes a couple hours. You don't have one of them big old uh, propane burners? 
Uh, I actually brew all electric. Oh, okay. So you have like an immersion heater? Yeah, yeah. I've got a, a hot water heater element drilled into the side of a pot. Mm. Okay, yeah, I could see that taking a while then. I, I got a buddy who uses the big propane stoves, and I guess it doesn't take hours to get it up to temperature, but I haven't brewed with them, so I wouldn't know firsthand. I use propane, and it still takes a while. I mean, it, I'd say at least half my time is getting up to temperature. Yeah. My, my big advantage is I don't have to make sure I have propane on hand. True. The, the wires coming into my house work uh, far more than 99% of the time. <laughs> Until <laughs> the apocalypse happens and you're out of soap to trade and you don't have electricity to make beer. Touche. I think he's got you, Adam. Yeah. Game, set, match. I, I will figure out a way to make beer. <laughs> you have to cut down the trees in your yard. Yeah. and Much like, uh, well, Brian's propane supply will uh, disappear in the apocalypse. No, no, no. Propane will be plentiful after the apocalypse. Uh-huh. Yeah, you just go raid the nearest 7-Eleven and you got more propane. <laughs> that's how that works okay but, but if the grid falls down the electricity disappears got it i I, mean, I know you're a civil engineer but the the electrons aren't stored in the wires ready to just flow you sure about that mm-hmm. see voltage is like a hill i'm trying to relate this to roads <laughs> <laughs> um what kind of draws on your uh resistive heating element uh well i brew with 120 i, I don't have a, a 240 system set up and I'm on 2,000 watts. Holy good God. That's a lot of watts. So that's, without thinking about that, that's what, 15 to 18 amps? It, I think it's 16 and a half, but I run on a 20 amp circuit. I've got a couple 20 amp circuits in my garage. Cool. Nice. But yeah, a lot of people who do electric, they brew with uh, 5,500 watt elements. Apparently that's pretty close to brewing with uh, propane as far as <laughs> speed, but uh, I'd have to get uh, a bigger circuit. Yeah, or uh, parallel them somehow. Yeah, combine a whole bunch of small ones. Which probably isn't the best idea. Well, as far as combining a whole bunch of circuits, isn't that like against code? I don't know. I'm not an electrician. <laughs> uh, it depends if they have multiple phases. Uh, the correct answer to that is yes, it is against code. Uh, it will work if you're on multiple phases, but it is against code. Gotcha. <laughs> I'm fairly certain. <laughs> so you can't have, like, a plug coming in from upstairs and, like, a plug from the garage and another one from the kitchen all on three separate circuits? The issue, as I remember it, is when you're running a single device, it's supposed to be on a single or a tide breaker. Mm-hmm. So... Essentially, what could happen is you could trip one of your two breakers, and you've not tripped everything. Mm-hmm. If something happened, you're, you're doing that. Here's one from the bathroom, and here's one from the, the, the kitchen. And plugging them in together, you could half your circuit be disconnected and the other half not. Yeah, I can see how that would be bad. Depends if you're conducting across both phases. If I mean, if, if they're truly on, because the 240 is basically 220-volt lines. Oh, I've got 90 degrees out of phase. 90 or 180. Please somebody help me. My brain's not working at this uh, point. Yes, but uh, trip curves on breakers are not 100% identical. Yes, but once you break one, you, you open the entire circuit. Until you accidentally uh, ground one to neutral, or go to neutral. You're right. You're right. That would be bad. So, 
By the way, uh, anyone listening, I, I am not in any way suggesting you do this. Uh, Adam is right. This is a terrible idea. I'm simply having a uh, pedagogical argument about how the circuit would behave. That's yes. You guys, you guys, and your disclaimers. It is a terrible idea to try to find two different phase outlets and get 240 from it. That is the worst <laughs> idea in the world. Uh, actually, there are plenty of other worse ones, but that's a bad idea. Yes, while it works, don't do it. Yes. Oh, but we want the, we want the cream of the crop listeners here. If they if they happen to thin themselves out from trying this, that's not our no, problem. No, we're not right? trying to call the listeners. Isn't that, isn't that included in the podcasting license? If you have not responsible <laughs> for any home improvement type injuries. Have, uh, let me just state if, warnings: if you have no experience with mains electricity, you have no business touching it. I, I will also throw out there: we are not electricians. Do not take what we say as advice on electricity. Except Adam, he's giving good advice. <laughs> yeah, I work, on, I work on small scale well, stuff. There's no there's no codes where I am. I am not an electrician. I mean, Jeff is perfectly fine. I think it's all it's I, all flexible. I think his house is illegally tapped off of some 4KV line. Well, that sounds like a good <laughs> plan too. Yeah. No, Jeff's house is powered by DC. He gets the AC by just flipping a switch at 120 hertz. <laughs> <laughs> Evidently, we lost Jeff. I mean, you got get your arm gets to work out. You gotta you gotta switch every now and again to keep your your muscles balanced. But it's it's not a bad system overall. I thought Jeff's house was entirely hydro. If the power ever goes out, you got the battery backup. <laughs> it just started raining really hard all of a sudden out my window. I was wondering what the hell that tapping was. This is great radio right here. We have a, we have a lot of rain over here too, and some thunder in the background. So it's just probably the same storm, right, Carmen? Probably. So we should just officially retire from podcasting, shouldn't we? We got to talking about the weather. Oh, geez. Yes. That's a podcast. In <sighs> All fact. right. Well, good good night and good luck, everyone. <laughs> Are you Edward R. Merle? That's what I said. Good night and good luck. <laughs> I don't know. Any thoughts on VHDL and hardware description languages, Carmen? Uh, not really. I know nothing about them, so I can't even call myself dangerous. I, I wish I could program. It seems like a useful skill. Uh, that's why I asked for an Arduino for my birthday. Which hopefully should get here next week sometime. Oh. Yeah. Which one did you buy? I want to. I want to try and pick it back up. And what was that? Which one did you buy? Uh, I didn't. I asked my brother for one. So my brother's for one. So we'll see. I think it's the Uno. What's the starter kit from Adafruit? It's that one. Mm-hmm. So I want. I wanted the instruction booklet too. And uh, you know, my parts parts bin at home is woefully woefully pathetic for someone who likes hardware as much as I do. So figured I'd rather just get the uh get all the parts and know I can go through the booklet and make LEDs blink and motors spin. So yeah. hopefully that'll be, you know, a rainy night like tonight. Just sit around and try to relearn how to program. And it's it's not all without uh without application, I guess, for lack of a better word here. Uh, there's there's some stuff I could automate at work if I had to, and kind of want to because it's boring and repetitive and the kind of task that begs for automation. So, why not? Well, here's a, a question for you guys, and I'm sure I know what the answer is. Being as I like playing with hardware, but I absolutely hate programming, yet like to find lots of projects that require some programming. What is there an easy way to avoid me having to do programming? Do it all at the transistor level. Build your own logic gates, and then you'll have to build the state machine, and then just never want to change what it does. Got it. So, 
not easy. I don't know. It'd probably depend on your actual application. And I'd fab an ASIC. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that starts. You got prototype it at the transistor level, wire wrap everything and solder it together and all that good stuff. Yes. Um, I, I think an Arduino is probably your best bet. I mean, there's really not a. I don't think there's a much higher level abstraction. Um, you can get a LabVIEW kit. Oh, God. LabVIEW and uh, one of their uh, digital I.O. boards is probably the easiest way to do it. Okay, so back where I'm, I'm at with the Arduino. Yeah, because LabVIEW's got a, a nice big, you could probably get 100 Arduinos for the price of a LabVIEW license and, you know, pulling your hair out trying to get LabVIEW up and running. Oh, no, actually, you can get it from, you can get a LabVIEW, you can get an Arduino and a LabVIEW license for like 50 bucks from SparkFun. Oh, you can get a LabVIEW license from SparkFun? I didn't know that. Yep. Hmm. Yeah, you can get the e-educational license. Cool. The only couple times I've tried to work with LabVIEW, I've never got anything working. And the documentation I found was not very good. It was all just nice and circular. Like, refer to handout 153A, and then you find that on their website, and then it directs you back to the original handout, and none of them explain your damn problem. Yeah, the the context help is notoriously, I mean, quasi-useful and bad. Oh, no, this was on, like, I was looking for, like, a getting started PDF or something. It wasn't even in the help menu. I knew better than that. (laughs) Yeah, I was just trying to interface to a a spy bus to talk to an ADC when I was doing my thesis, and I I couldn't get anything out of LabVIEW. It was terrible. Uh, My experience has been, it started off bad, and it's been much more positive. I would say... uh, uh, I've now worked in environments where you have a lot of orphan code. Oh, okay. So, so you get, uh, you know, you can you get all the software that was developed in the late '90s, uh, early knots. You know, it's all in Java and you know uh, VB6, and then you know people moved on to you know whatever dot flavor of .NET they wanted to use. All of a sudden, you get a ton of Python mm-hmm. and Ruby on Rails and I've actually never seen Ruby on Rails. I'm just assuming hypothetically that it would exist, but I have seen a lot of Python. And the problem is that now you've got, you know, test equipment, uh, uh, device development systems that you know are just a hodgepodge of various code pieces that people built for that one situation. And, mm-hmm. you know, they don't really want to have anyone ask them several years later how it works. You know, they've already taken credit for having designed it. But then they've forgotten and moved on. Exactly. Well, and, and forbid that somebody were to actually comment code. Oh, yeah. In a useful way, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. You- or not intentionally obfuscated it. But I would say that LabVIEW then fits a really sweet uh, niche of being the least common denominator. Hmm. It's the easy, it's not even a programming language, but... It's the easiest programming environment for somebody who's never written an ounce of code to literally just be thrown and be able to pick up. Hmm. Hmm. So it's not my experience, but I don't know. I, I, I could be missing something. It's scary how quickly you can do very complicated things, uh, both at you know the macro, you know spectrum analyzer level, all the way down to spy bus. Um, yeah, it, there, mm-hmm. it can suck, but it can also be terrifyingly quick. Yeah, I, I've seen people write good LabVIEW, and I've seen 
what I tried to do, and it is that kind of jaded me a little bit. So I'm sure sure you can use it for a lot of really useful stuff, but it's not not been my experience, unfortunately. My attitude used to be uh, that uh, I'd kind of a snobbish attitude towards it, like you know, only people who can't code use LabVIEW, and then again, I experienced everything I just described, like all none of the tools quite work. You know, now you're trying to figure out which DLL changed, <laughs> and all that stuff is taken care of by National Instruments. And oh, well, there is something to, to keep in mind, and partly for the listeners, th- there is a difference between can't and don't want to. Yes, that's a very in terms of what commenting your code and keeping it. Uh, well, I mean, well, someone may be able to write. You know, this great assembly la- assembly code or uh, C++ or whatever, if there's an easier, quicker way to do it, they may not want to do it that way. Because if I can spend a week... True. It, it, and, I mean, I'm not a horrible programmer. I, I can write some decent Python. I could figure out how to do a lot of things in C++. I just don't want to. Because I could spend a week figuring that out. Yeah, huh? stick with what you know. Stick with what you well, know. Well, I could spend a week doing that, or I could spend 20 minutes doing it some other way that's not as, I don't know, advanced, so to speak. You know, the cheater's way. Mm-hmm. But who cares as long as it works? Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, as long as it gets you where you need to go. and The system's dependencies, if we're talking about you know, how your attitude towards certain things changes after you get out of college and you hit the real world, the system dependencies that you totally take for granted and how much Windows sucks as a, you know, it both sucks and all the tools are available on it. So it sucks as a product development, not product development, as a, um, as a product platform for any sort of a software-based system. I've seen the quarter to a half million dollar laser system become totally useless because a Windows update changed the analog.dll that was used to monitor the temperature on the motherboard, which happened to be the same DLL that was being used by the laser for something totally different. I don't know why, but the update happened, all of a sudden, the laser doesn't work anymore. You know, and that's one of thousands of DLLs, and, you know, the weeks that I spent trying to figure out why... When I left on Friday and the laser was working in on Monday, it wasn't. And I didn't even know the Windows update had happened. Ugh. Mm-hmm. But is that Microsoft's fault? No. I, I mean, you just have to expect it. And it's it's kind of the nastiness of using a managed system like um, yeah, Microsoft doesn't know that whoever the laser manufacturer was used that for their you know mission-critical system. And it's not their responsibility. Right. But it's it's just it's an example of the dependencies that you can run into, you know, when part of your very complex system becomes a piece of code. I was making the case for LabVIEW and having the nice walled garden that National Instruments provides you. But there are certainly counterexamples. But it, but isn't that the example? I mean Apple has its entire world where it controls the, the hardware. So it can make the software do neat things, whereas Microsoft said, we'll take anybody's hardware 
and we'll work on it. That's a classical statement, but that I think that is a distinction that is decreasing rapidly and uh, tends to be something that only kids of the 80s and 90s remember. <laughs> okay. But, but isn't that what you're saying with national <laughs> instruments? Hey, I'll, I'm going to go with the system where they control the hardware and the software. Exactly. As, a, as, uh, yeah. as opposed to MATLAB, which says we'll work on somebody else's hardware. Or, you know, somebody who builds an, somebody who builds a hardware system, a hardware interface system instead of the .NET framework, or whatever their favorite scripting or programming language was for the week. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it, it's crazy that for the most part, you can take a LabVIEW eight system that I don't even know what what operating system that was running on. You know, that might have been Windows two thousand system and you know you can install it and it'll still work so i i haven't done tons with national instrument stuff with LabVIEW, but you know with matlab i mean i know people that are still running you know matlab 2007 2008 you know we're up through several versions now or maybe that was matlab 7 and matlab 8 maybe they don't do the 2013 type stuff but whatever it was i mean they're running several generations ago because with each update, there are certain pieces of their code that quit working. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I just I just think that's the nature of software that you 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 constantly have to be you know be worrying about these things, and that that makes the case for unit testing or or some sort of testing where you know you're constantly checking to make sure that that somebody's change, even if it's not your change, hasn't messed up your code. I agree. It is kind of crazy how many how much of an industry there is or seems to be for maintaining or continuing to support so-called obsolete things. Um, I just ran across a piece of equipment at work that uses uh, RS-232 serial um, with a DB9 connector. And they re- they will not go to USB. Now, uh, I'll explain that. <laughs> assuming that you're not using a high, you know, a Cypress or an FTDI chip that somehow handles the, um, you know, implements a USB stack for you and turns it into a UART, mm-hmm. that that is a scary proposition. It, it is a terrifying prospect if somebody walked in your office and said, I want to take our 232 device you know, to USB 2. Oh, and by the way, I don't want to buy anyone else's, you know, hardware. Because it's expensive. Well, but in, in practice, then, I need to go get somebody else's hardware to do a USB to 232 conversion. Yes. Which may or may not work. Because uh, those don't always work with every piece of equipment. You're right. And it's it's getting less and less common to find a 232 jack on a computer. Yeah. You you have to special order them nowadays, it seems, especially on a laptop. Go to Micro Center. Well, yeah, they're all getting so damn thin, you can't fit a 232 on there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a whole there's a whole world just supporting legacy military platforms. Those, those things mm-hmm. get orders of magnitude more expensive as they get older and older and older, and yet still are required to function. Mm-hmm. Didn't you guys talk in past episodes about people buying up the old uh, old chips just to have them for for this very purpose for for those systems that were running into obsolescence? 
Well, NASA was famously doing that at one point. You know, I, I, I remember, and I maybe it's apocryphal, but I remember seeing maybe a CNET article about NASA on eBay buying up, you know, what was it, old 8086 processors or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, I think it was mentioned, this was probably at least a year ago, if not more, on the Amp Hour, mentioned uh, some fad that started up with, like, really old processes because they got the equipment at, you know, surplus dirt cheap prices and were building obsolete parts for various, you know, customers who still needed that kind of thing. I mean, they charged an arm and a leg because where else are you going to get it? But it's, uh, it's still a lucrative business model if you can hit the right conditions. You know, I think uh, Todd Nelson on, on our episode Analog Footsteps was talking about buying the old equipment for their uh, for their analog circuits and uh, just buying the stuff that was the uh, you know the older IC processing equipment. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's a little different, but that's coming in and, and just buying it cheap and using it because nobody else wants it. Yeah, that, that's how it kind of works. Is it, it'll it'll trickle down in the the semiconductor industry. You'll have your your Intels and your TSMCs and your Global Foundries, and they're all on the latest, you know, 90 nanometer or 20 nanometer digital nodes. And, you know, when they're when they're done with it, you know, they have no use for it. they got to move on to the next one. So all of a sudden that becomes way cheaper, and then the analog guys will get it because who cares? We use big devices in analog anyways. And then they'll take it and design their own process around it to optimize it for analog work, and then... You know, when they're done with mm-hmm. it, they'll pass it on to whoever else needs it that, you know, it's still a big improvement for them, but they can use two or three generations behind process technology. Right. Um, I think it was Cree LEDs will buy old semiconductor equipment from the companies, analog companies when they're done with it. You know, they're still on, you know, let's say you're on... 30-inch wafers or something for your latest digital, they're still doing 6-inch wafers, say, whatever it is. Right. Because they, they can make do with that older technology, and it still produces really good, innovative LEDs, but you wouldn't want to design any real circuits on it, like cutting edge. Right. Yeah, it's, that's a little different than using completely obsolete. It's not like using the, the original <laughs> processors they built with that one micron right. digital process. <laughs> Well, I mean, getting back to the FPGA stuff, I've seen where, you know, they're, the guys who know what they're doing can write entire microprocessors on FPGAs these mm-hmm. days. Yeah, they've, they've, uh, I can't remember the name of the processor, but yeah, someone's like reproduced a couple processors all in FPGAs. Yeah, there's been a Zilog one. And I'm sure yeah. you still have a lot of leftover logic for whatever else you want. <laughs> well, right, uh, right now, the, uh, the big thing is starting to embed risk, uh, risk cores, arm cores in, um, in FPGAs, so actually physically embed the device, not a not a uh, lattice logic version of it, uh, right. and then use the surround it with programmable logic so that you can add special functions. I can only imagine the data sheets for those parts. I'm assuming it's a textbook. Oh yeah, uh, a good example would be like the Xilinx Zinc series. Mm-hmm. So in a field like electrical engineering or electronics specifically. You know, the, the technology is moving so fast where, you know, these developments are happening. We're subject to Moore's law. I don't see that happening quite so fast in mechanical engineering. I mean, you know, bearings are bearings and there are advancements in bearings, but it's not like I have to worry about, you know, specking out a bearing this year and four years from now not being able to get that bearing anymore. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so I don't know whether all engineers suffer, you know, the same worry about obsolescence. In fact, Adam, weren't you saying last time that that uh, civil engineers sort of fought the obs- obsolescence stuff? They just they refused to change. Yeah, there's a lot of things, mostly due to certifications, that we just if it's proven to work, it's what we want to use. Right. I mean, uh, signal controllers have progressed in the last thirty years, but not that much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, my phone has more computing power than a signal controller. Right. Which, it, it works. It has to work, though. That's the thing. It has to work 100% of the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, lives kind of depend on you doing your job right. I mean, indirectly, I guess they do on mine, but not, you know, if a chip goes out late, it's not going to kill anybody. <laughs> yeah. If that signal controller accidentally gives two people greens that are, you know, 90 degrees from each other, Bad things happen. Yeah, that's not good for anybody. Um, and there are yeah, safeties. Heck of a YouTube video. There are safeties in there that prevent that from happening. They're hardwired safeties that mm-hmm. it can't happen. That, that was going to be my next question. <laughs> what, what about yes. hackers? Like in uh, Live Free or Die Hard, that one Die Hard movie from a few years back where they, they took over the city and had a firestorm, and they made all the green lights everywhere turn green. Well, I was going to ask, Adam, how do you control that? I mean, when you say it can't happen, do you actually control the return paths? Are they they wired in such a way that if one one light is red, the other one can't terminate its, its, sorry, if one light's green, the other one can't terminate its green light? Um, There's a device in between the controller, the computer, and the the actual relays, is my understanding. And I, I don't wire up cabinets so I'm not exactly sure how all this works, that has a physical card in it with soldered jumpers that you set which lights can be on at the same time. Mm-hmm. And if two that are not allowed to be on at the same time go on, that card overrides everything else going to the going to the lights and puts everything to flash. Hmm. Ooh. And you have somebody has to go out there and reset that. Interesting. So you it you're done. So actually, quote-unquote, hack the traffic light to get, you know, the kind of gridlock they show in movies. You'd actually have to have someone on the scene, like, physically breaking every red light in the city. Yes. <laughs> yeah. so Adam, if, if, you wanted to hack the, if you wanted to hack the lights, tell us how you'd do it. <laughs> well, uh, depending on where you are, you may not be able to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Say, let's just hypoth- hypotheticals here. You're a disgruntled employee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, most of those things can't happen. They're hardwired in. Yeah. Um, but if they could. <laughs> yeah. So you <laughs> see the next Die Hard movie and they've broken into the chip fab and changed the mask set. That's that's when you really got to worry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but then, then more than just the traffic lights are in trouble. Ooh, a lot of things are in trouble at that point, I yes. think. Yeah. Well, so, Jeff, I got a question I, for you. Uh, go, go ahead, Carmen. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to close that out. I, I'd have to search for the article and throw it in show notes. But uh, that was one of the things they were worried about with, like, processors and stuff, is if someone changed the mask set, you know, on the random number generators in there, that they could subtly, so only they, if you knew what you were looking for, you could see that it wasn't actually a random number, and you could use the profile of that random number generator to crack all the encryptions that the, you know, that are then based on those random numbers that it spits out. Hmm. Because you know the the starting values. I'm just going to throw out there that I think the risk of that happening is so low. Because first of all, you'd have to find somebody 
who knows enough about the masks to figure out how to change them. Mm -hmm. That's nefarious enough to want to do this. And then you have to get them past all the security to actually get into the... I'm assuming these are in a clean room? Yeah. Well, yeah, it says they're being built. And without anybody noticing. It's tricky. You'd probably have a better shot, but still unlikely, of modifying the code to, you know, shift the random number generator. You know, the hardwired code in there. It's easier to attack the firmware. The the BIOS, if you will. It's, it's way easier to attack the firmware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there we go. Firmware. But, uh... Jeff, I got a question for you. Sure. Um, is an autonomous vehicle a robot? Yeah, I, well, at least I use the terms fairly interchangeably. And uh, I, th- I, I, I think the public vernacular is such. But would you, would you, def- would you think it's a fair characterization? Like, where does where does uh, where does robotics end and uh, guided or programmable machines begin? Uh, I don't know. I. To me, they're they're pretty interchangeable. I I just personally I think of robots as being in either one of two forms. You're, you've either got a uh, an android type human like looking robot, uh, which is sort of from the sci fi stuff, and then traditionally I think of robots as being devices that have the uh, you know the rigid links, two or three or four rigid links, and you know they're the devices you see in the auto factory or yeah, so, something with an end effect. With something with an end effector. And so typically I use the term robot when I'm referring to one of those two, either the Android type or the factory type. And I usually when I'm talking to other people about like the robots we built for this mechatronics course, I, I call it autonomous vehicle. Uh, but you know, I interchangeably I'll often talk to it, talk about it being a robot. It, I, there may be some technical differentiation, but I don't. I don't adhere. I don't adhere to that. Dang, I couldn't bait you into a argument. Oh, what what did you want to argue about? <laughs> oh no, I had a, I had an argument at one at one time, and it's, it's it's still it for me has become an interesting academic discussion of you know is an autonomous vehicle a robot? People will say yes, of course. It's you know self driving cars is a robots, you know robotics, I guess. And then I would say, well, is a missile a robot? You know, is a guided missile a robot? And typically the response is no. Right. And I, I, I think that's where the discussion gets interesting, where people make the decisions that certain things are or are not robots. Or like a CNC machine, is that a robot? Well, if the car's a robot and the other ones aren't, it's because it has wheels. Well, actually, I, I think the <laughs> that's the difference I see. And I, Jeff, you could things might be different, but I've had hard. I've asked that question of hardcore roboticists, and they get. A little bit snippy and insist that CNC <laughs> machines are not robots. So why are they not robots, but the device assembling uh, circuit boards on the line are? Oh, you should not agree with me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so we need to get a we need to get an angry roboticist on the show here. Yeah, I, I, I'm not asking the question because I think it's a defensible position. Well, okay, well, so so here's here's the more interesting question I think is looking out 20 years. At what point are we going to be able to make the dif- uh, the differentiation? Still make the differentiation between human and robot. You know, it's 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 pretty easy right now because you know we're we're making prosthetic limbs, and we're making prosthetic pieces, uh, replacing hips and knees and that kind of stuff. But at some point, uh, are we not going to start augmenting the brain? Are we not going to start augmenting other things? You know, we've got what we've got hearing devices and visual 
uh, sensors. Uh, somewhere down the road, I don't know, maybe it's not 20 years, maybe it's 200 years, but that's going to be a much in- more, you know, complex uh, equation. It's not the difference between robots and uh, uh, other types of, of uh, smart, you know, quote unquote smart devices, but uh, at what point humanity starts to sort of mix in with the machines. I've got the, my reoccurring, um, Robot killing thought is uh, <laughs> was that robot killing thought? <laughs> well, no, not, not thoughts of killing robots, but the uh, uh, what is it? Is it a, would it be a metaphor that uh, uh, the old statement of robot killer cannot compute? Cannot compute? Right. Um, what is the future for humans, especially economically, as things become more and more automated? And you know, I'm well aware of the kind of paranoia, and you know the feeling that that paranoia was unfounded back in the seventies and eighties is a lot of, you know, welding and, and, uh, parts movement placement and, you know, the things that were first automated by heavy robot, heavy robotics in the automotive industry. But as you see more and more things, everything, you know, being automated, I, I honestly have, I have real concerns about our economic future, you know, like, uh, uh, two examples. I mean, a lot of people used to be employed by uh, Blockbuster, and you know who killed it? Netflix or the little robots that are now outside of every Walgreens and you know uh, McDonald's that are now feeding up DVDs. You know, and taxi drivers kind of been a, an entry level job in our society for a long time. And I look at the self driving car and say, well, that's ultimately going to eliminate that job. Well, let me throw in an argument to that. While it eliminates one type of job, which is typically not a very good job, it creates the opportunity for additional better jobs. That's an assumption. You're assuming everyone can get the education and training to do those jobs then too. Well, not everyone is going to be, not everyone's going to be capable of those jobs. But as you make as we have these uh, DVD machines, all of a sudden there's somebody who has to maintain those machines because they're not going to take care of themselves for now. Well, or what about when you eliminate really high paying jobs like pharmacists? I, I, I don't, I, and I don't mean, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to force you to defend robots, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, or, or automated systems. I mean, there's, there's, there's very few jobs that can be protected, if you will. I mean, who would have thought that accountants would have been one of the first jobs uh, potentially eliminated by software or tax accountants, at least? Right. Same same thing with intellectual property attorneys. You'd think they'd be protected, but there's software that goes out and reviews patent materials now and makes analyses based on that. Mm-hmm. Well, even those sorts of, of systems, though, aren't a substitute for an expert yet. Yeah, it's hard for those systems at this time to see the nuance and shades of gray in every situation. Yeah, and it's it's hard for those systems to be creative. So, so if you can define yes. if you can define what needs to be done and it can be repeated, then then that job's in danger because somebody used the term software is eating everything. I mean, if someone can program, you know, if the information can be put into a computer and someone can analyze that data and spit it back out, software is going to do it. 
but if you're creative, if you if you need that artistic sense or that ability to combine things in a way that hasn't been combined, at least for now, it seems that's where you're safe. Uh, although I don't know, I don't know what the situation is going to be in 20, 30 years. By the way, have you have any of you ever heard of the book called or the short story called The Midas Plague? No. Can't say I have, no. Okay, so a interesting story, and it was written back in, uh, I think it was about 1952, but the basically they talk about the same thing in, in, in essence without, you know, giving, well, I was kind of giving away the entire story, but I don't think many, pe- <laughs> many of our listeners are actively reading this thing that's been around since the 1950s. Um, basically what happens is the poor people have to consume everything. So because of the robots that can, that can produce so much, so many goods, you know, the poor people, it, it becomes incumbent up, up upon them to consume everything. So, uh, those who are poor and can't buy their way out of consumption have to, uh, wear, wear all the clothes. And so they, they end up, you know, working real hard to wear out clothes and they have to go to all the doctor's offices, right? Or the doctor's appointments because we have psychiatrists and we have, internists and we have all these doctors that need to, you know, they need money. So the poor people who can't afford to buy their way out of it have to go. Whereas the rich people don't have to, don't have to use anything, don't have to eat anything, don't have to um, go to any of the doctor's appointments, so to speak. And so it's kind of an interesting flip on the, on the, uh, the present situation where the rich can have whatever they want. And in this world, because of the robots producing so many goods, the rich buy their way out of it, and so the rich don't have to consume everything, whereas the poor do. That's a cool inversion. Interesting. I have to look up that story now. Well, you can have it for two ninety nine in a Kindle edition on Amazon. Ooh. All right then. That'll be my next impulse buy. It, it's sixty nine pages, so it's not exactly a long read. Hmm. Yeah, the topic's really. I mean. I've been thinking about this a lot since seeing the Google self-driving car, the automated pharmacy, and then Rodney Brooks's company, uh, Rethink Robotics, who has a uh, uh, absurdly cheap programmable robot. You know, if you think about your your cartoon mm-hmm. bubble of what a manufacturing robot would be, this is it, and it's very easy to program. I think you just move the end effectors and, like, you know set your waypoints and then it, it repeats and has a moderate amount of the uh, moderate amount of ability to, uh, uh, to interpret its surroundings. Cool. And it, it costs less than it would actually generally cost to employ somebody for a year, which is kind of scary. But, but as always, I mean, the, you know, the truth is your friend. If that's the world we're coming into, then, you know, let's embrace the fact that's the world we're coming into and try to figure out how to how to best deal with it. Oh, there's lots of examples of people who have resisted change. Mm-hmm. Well, but yeah, but wasn't that the uh, I'm trying to think of this story. There was this story about the guy that was the uh, John Henry. Remember, there was the yeah, there was the, the steam, steam driven uh, steam shovel or whatever, and he was going to drive through the mountain quicker than he, you know, and, and basically he did. He beat the machine, but died in the process. Mm hmm. I mean, there's there's plenty of examples, which is why you, I, I'm I'm keenly aware that having these thoughts has historically been a uh, intellectually losing proposition. Right. So you're betting on the chance that someone's going to be right sometime. 
No, I'm betting, I'm I'm concerned about the fact that we're getting better and better and better at designing these systems. Uh-huh. And you are starting to see, I mean, you've seen, I mean, again, I, I don't want to turn this into a politics and economics. You've seen productivity gains, uh, you know, driven by automation and, and software systems in this country and around the world that are not proportionally helping society. You know, we're not, we're not seeing more employment as a result of them. Yeah, but that's not that's not how the system is gamed. Oh, understood. Yeah. <laughs> the the problem is the, the the people who control how the system is gamed don't really want it changed because they're doing pretty well. Oh yeah. I I don't have a Pollyanna view of of you know, economics and and uh commerce. It's 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 fun to consider inside of a thought bubble. Right. So, okay, so so along those lines, let me present this one that I, I find, at least in my own little head, I find interesting. So let's say that uh, Chris Gamble is right, and there is a – in the few, in the not-too-distant future, there's a chip printing machine. You know, you go out, instead of your MakerBot 3D printer, you go out and buy your XYZ chip-making making, uh, machine. And in fact, let's, let's say this is such – this is so advanced that you could – uh, print something that came close to a, you know, an, a, a Kindle or a iPhone. Now, so we're out more than five years, you know, we're out in the distant future, but we can do this. So at what point does the need for the big companies fall away? Does it ever fall away? Are they able to, con- are they able to control the patents so that you can't produce it? Or, you know, are you able to produce it because you're only making one for yourself and for your you know, or a few for your family, or are we are we going to need the support that goes with it? You know, somebody has to keep you know to somebody has to define the standards so the code can interact, uh, or or will open source code step in and do a Linux type arrangement where we can all code to the same standard and everything works together? I think code's different than hardware. But isn't that the beauty of code is it, it abstracts things out? We run C code on all kinds of different machines. Um, I think the you need the code, but also you can't underestimate how much of a uh, – the requirements for and the advancements in mobile computing are necessary in order to have those coding environments. And you could say in some at some point in the future, yes, there may be chip printers. So let's just imagine that. But that also says that the chip printers can produce a, a product that is worth producing as as compared to what a high volume, high highly capitalized company can produce. So let's just say you've got a chip printer that can only do you know one micron. Mm-hmm. You know, and Samsung and Intel are doing you know a hair above a nanometer, you know, that is a difference that matters, you know, and they have armies of engineers that, that can organize the complex systems associated with, with, uh, with these processors and with their support ICs. In fact, the power management chips on these devices are crazy complicated. Oh yeah. Um, I could speak to that. One. <laughs> That's an episode in and of itself. 
you know, it's just, they will always produce value. Now, whether they find themselves in an industry that no longer is valued by the customer, that's another thing. But the army of engineers will always crush the person at home mm-hmm. in terms of the quality of the product they can produce. Yeah, open source may be able to do the next power management ship or something, but I mean, it's it's, it's kind of different than software in the sense that you're building the devices themselves rather than the programming. So software, yeah, you're working towards the goal of has to work on these devices, but there's a million different ways you could hook up three different transistors, let alone 3,000 or more. Um, and, and yeah. trying to find the optimal sense that's going to hit all the corners these devices are going to work on and letting kind of the masses do it. I, I, I struggle to see how they'd find an optimal solution, but I'm ready to be proved wrong. <laughs> well, that, that's the problem is there is no one optimal solution and everybody, you know, you see this in software projects too. Everybody who dives into a software project wants to do it their their own way. And so you end up with this code that has a zillion options because you have to have the option for everybody that's contributed to the project. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas something at Apple or something at IBM, or, you know, there's somebody in charge who goes, no, we're not doing that. And, and I can afford to tell you no because you have, you, you're employed and in exchange for us giving you a salary, you're going to do what we've asked you to do. Well, but, but importantly, I mean, even if they were open source, let's just say that tomorrow, you know, Intel and, um, God, who's a big, you know, Apple for that matter, put all of the organization of their chips, all their architectures and how, how, how everything is, uh, even heck all the masks, if they put all the masks for their ICs and detailed descriptions of the process out in the public domain, what could the person at home do with that? You know? Yeah. It's... It, the, the means of production in this case don't, don't really get, I mean, knowing how they're made, having the diagrams and the ability to produce it are totally different things. Well, go back um, 20 or 30 years and say the same thing with the circuit board. Um, That's a little bit like talking home aircraft manufacturing and home spaceship manufacturing. It's It's so different. It's, it's, it's not even a matter of time and dedication. It's, it's a matter of money and, and, um, your ability to do manufacturing controls, which I, I just, I can't imagine that somebody's ever going to, and even if they, the, the arms race that is currently taking place inside of the semiconductor industry any home-based system to do it wouldn't be exempted from that. Yeah, because you're taking all that the army of engineers and you're you're making one guy responsible for the the circuit level design, the manufacture, the, the the testing of the IC, the process itself. You know, as you're tweaking, you know your little bits and pieces of raw material you're giving the chip printer, and it's. That, that's a lot of knowledge for one person to know. I mean, people get PhDs in any one of those areas, and it's I, I, that's a lot. That's what we had going on, you know, at the, the start of the semiconductor revolution that led to this. And now you're a chip printer at home would be like starting back in the, the 60s or 70s. Right. Hardware is hard. I think that's, I mean, it seems st- stupid and simple to say, but hardware is really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as somebody who very much appreciates how difficult software is, 
but yeah, man, it's, a, it's a different kind you know, of hard manufacturing and yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a hard in a way that can be very. As <laughs> I'm about to say something, I'm immediately thinking of examples where I'm wrong. <laughs> I'm thinking of like, I'm thinking of how expensive it is to run a high end software team, but you know, the capital costs associated with producing anything, mm-hmm. you know, are pretty daunting. Yeah. So, so while you were talking about that, I was thinking though that. You know, the conversation made it sound like there was no way that that a small group of people could compete with the large, you know, manufacturing firms, the Samsungs and the Apples and the IBMs and the Intels and that kind of stuff. But but isn't, uh, you know, all the arm processors, aren't those de- uh, designed by arm holding in England, which is a fairly small company? Yeah, but I mean, you can um, say that they're doing a, just a very small piece of that, like arm itself doesn't actually make ICs. They're doing our computer architecture. Yeah, they're doing the, the instruction set. Yeah. Yeah. The inst- and I mean, I guess they're maybe doing a transistor layout and everything in a mass set that you can drop into your own circuit, but that's still a relatively small piece. Do they actually even do that? Uh, I, I think. There's a good Amp Hour episode on it um, with the Energy Micro guys, I believe. And they there's two different ARM licenses. Mm-hmm. There's one where you can license the instruction set and then design your own processor or there's just kind of a drop-in arm processor i believe for i just want to have a processor in this application and i'll take this arm one pop it in and then do my fpga around it you know something like that i mean at the end of the day arm arm allows people and this is my two cents arm allows companies that aren't really in the processor game to be in the processor game Mm -hmm. so it allows them to partner with tsmc or, or make their own you know, or the global founders, and or, you know, or I, I rarely I, are there any arm people that are fabbing their own. I'm there's sure there's be. some, but I, I can't think of any off the top of my head. Yeah, I'm sure there are, but um, it allows them to compete with the likes of Intel. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's still huge companies competing with huge companies. You know, they use you know the um, the arm holding company as a as a vendor, but you know, it isn't. It isn't like you have a million dollar company competing with a billion dollar company, right? Well, here let me throw this uh, concept out to you guys, and I'll see what you think. Do you think that there will be a day when, for chip design, there'll be a service like um, some of these PCB services, where you go put something together in your computer, send off a, a chip file, and they in two weeks send you one or two or three of the chip you designed. They have that now. It's it's a little wow. different than what you described, yeah. but it's called uh, it's called Mosis M O S I S I believe it's spelled, and it's yeah using mm-hmm. commercial software. How you get that? I think there's legal ways and illegal ways, but uh, you know you design your chip and you can send it off to them. And I, I know the prices are coming down, but I, I from last I heard it was like ten grand or something and. You know, you'll get a tube of ten or fifteen ICs that you designed, but that's also on very unbonded. Old. What was that? Unbonded and unpackaged, right? Uh, well, the deck I built at school was in a, a dip package, but it was a very big dip package. Like there were way more pins than what I needed. Um, it was like those old purple packages, and you can see the bare die if you look under a microscope. 
Um, hmm. Yeah, so it's not cutting edge. I mean, you you wouldn't use this service to design the next iPhone or anything like that. The the processor, the baseband communications device, but it, it's good for like students and you know small companies trying to prove out designs or something. Or if you need a special chip that does one thing and there is no commercially viable drop-in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can handle working at the, the larger process and everything. Companies do that all the time, too, with ASICs. Mm-hmm. But you know, you're also in the position of using 8-bit micro or, you know, or 16-bit micro. You know, Even if it's got an analog transfer function, just use a micro. Yeah. It's a, it's a complicated world. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, th- I think it would be rare that somebody would come up with a, especially these days, it's it's increasingly rare that somebody would come up with a gotta have IC that doesn't exist you know, or can't be made with a combination of other ICs. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can still push innovation and come up with a new architecture. That could all come from one person who does the high-level oh, modeling yeah. and proving out. That happens all the time. But, yeah, that, that same person isn't also going to go and redesign the, the band gap circuit in most cases. I'm sure there's exceptions to everything. But, you know, he's not going to go redesign the band gap circuit to go from a milliamp current draw to 100 microamps. And he's also not going to adjust the amplifiers to get the proper gain. And then he's not going to do the layout of the chip and spit it out and test it on the bench. He's going to have all this other stuff to do. Oh, certainly. I was only saying that from the context of somebody designing a circuit board. Oh, yeah. So how much of this knowledge is taught in school and how much is housed within the company? So, you know, is it is it close where in school you kind of get a hint of what's going on and then when, when you work in industry they tell you what's really going on or is it there's no hint at all you know you're learning one set of things you know you're doing circuit analysis in school and then you go off to the company and they go okay here are all the tricks of how we make things work well let me let me ask you the question if if somebody asked you to make a you know multi-axis rotary system i mean i could describe the gear ratios that i might need to do it maybe even the loads but how do you design a captive bearing system? Was that discussed in in undergraduate university? No, but I would. So if I needed to do something like that, though, I would. My first, you know, my first turn would be what's what's out there. So I'd be going and contacting yeah. all the commercial companies, going, "Hey, you've got something that looks like it might work in my system." And then once, and then I they would say, "Well, you can have it for you know." You can have it for thirty dollars, and I'd go. Well, that's not worth my time to mess with. Let's let's buy as many as we can at thirty dollars. Or they would go, it's thirty thousand dollars, and I'd go, gulp. That's a little more than you know this project was willing to spend. Uh, let's think about can we make it ourselves? Can, is there something similar? But at least now I have an idea of because I've looked at theirs. I've either looked at patents or I looked at you know what's commercially on the market, or I've looked in textbooks, or you know I've looked somewhere to find out how this thing might be done. Uh, and of course, if they've got a patent or they have a, a trade secret where they don't reveal how they do it, I'm stuck. I got to pay the 30 grand if that's what I want. Yeah, for us, it's just like that, but electrical. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> okay. much, yeah. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. See, that makes me very happy. I live, I work in a, um, <laughs> a very, a very open world <laughs> that not everything, uh, is, is, 
I, I don't want to necessarily use the word open source because of how it's got so many modern or so many connotations to the kind of the hobbyist approach. But <laughs> I'm a hobbyist the road plans are wrong. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> designing my own freeway right now. Um, but the the plans. I have a solar powered roadway to sell you. <laughs> what was that? I, I I did hear about that. <laughs> That's that's open source, and that's a hobbyist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that sounds... Uh, my take on that was pretty much the same as Dave's, except maybe slightly more uh, aggressive. <laughs> or skeptical. There we go. I derailed you from your point. Go ahead. I, I, sorry. <laughs> but, yeah, anyway, um, when it comes down to it, the plans for at least roads and bridges end up becoming part of the public domain. So you may or may not know all the details and you need that background information. But if somebody did something, what they did is out there. So you can reverse engineer it more than likely if you have the, the background to do so. Mm -hmm. So you can't go, Hmm? I was going to say, you can't go to a planning commission and say that, that whole assembly is proprietary. There, there are very small exceptions. There are areas where things are proprietary, but by and large, most things are not. I mean, th- there may be systems like a specific camera system for detection might be proprietary, but. In practice, the civil engineer is not the one doing that. It's the uh, electrical engineers who are doing that, and we're just buying that component. Mm. Uh, and there's no way that the civil engineers are going to do... We're not going to put together the plans for a camera system or detection system mm-hmm. into our, our plan sets. It's not part of civil engineering. We'll either say, all right, we're going to buy this, or we're going to give you specifications. You go buy something and build it, put it in our, in our, in our system. So any any topics anybody wants to hit before we wrap this thing up? Not that I can see, no. Okay. Well, we'll be we'll be more prepared for the next show. We uh we had some guest difficulties this week. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> so this was this was completely on the fly that also wasn't our year in review, so there were no set topics. <laughs> Zero. Zero. Ab- less than nothing. <laughs> less than nothing. All right. Well, we've, we've, we've managed to, uh, waste yet another hour and a half of your life. We apologize for that. What nice listeners we have. Thank you for, uh, for listening in. And, uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a, uh, a guest. Hopefully all will work out. We'll have a guest for that episode as well as, uh, some episodes that follow. So please come back and join us in a couple of weeks on the Engineering Commons podcast. Sounds good. See you. Bye. Good night. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.